Welcome to Speak Up, the official podcast of Speech Pathology Australia. We bring you insightful conversations with leading professionals about key issues and innovations in speech pathology, all in a concise format that's perfect for your busy schedule. We aim to inform, inspire, and also engage. We love hearing from you, so please join the conversation on our social media platforms or email us with your thoughts and questions. And please subscribe and share with your friends and colleagues. Your support helps us grow and inform, inspire and engage others. Now, let's embark on today's conversation. Hi, and welcome to Speak Up. This is Nadia, and today I'm recording from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung and Boonwurrung Boon Wurrung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation in Nam, Melbourne. We are continuing our series of life members today, and so I'm really pleased to introduce Anne Zubrick. Hi, Anne. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Nadia, and lovely to be talking to you from Wajak Noongar Buja. That means I'm on the Wajak part of Noongar land here in Western Australia in Fremantle. Fabulous. Thank you. So, Anne, you've got a very different career path to a lot of the people that we've spoken to so far, but can you start us out by just telling us a bit about what attracted you to speech pathology as a profession in the first place? It's hard to sum up. I um, I found myself ill-fitted to a first-year science degree at the University of Western Australia when I had had a school experience where I really, really loved science subjects, but I also had done speech uh, and drama at school, and I loved that. But I didn't think about that as adding a dimension to what I might think about professionally. I'd seen myself as a sleuth, <laughs> um, probably working in solving crimes. Because <laughs> You know, I just loved kind of experimental chemistry. But my experience at university, I was one of just a small handful of women in doing a science degree. And we were not paid attention to, to put it mildly, mm-hmm. at university. The attention all went to the blokes in the class, particularly in tutorials. And... Um, I felt at the end of my first year, this is not something that I want to pursue. And my father, who was uh, working in the medical school, had a sabbatical year. And he said, take a break, Anne. Uh, Travel with your mother and me, and we'll spend a year away. And while I was away, I was working for a time in a cafeteria in London. And I decided that I would go to night school to the British Drama League. And I did a course in improvisation, uh, which I loved. And I also did one in stage direction. And I had a year of theatre. And I thought, oh, I love something that helped me reconnect with things that I had done Uh, in all the years and all the examinations I'd done in in speech and drama. And I don't know where I first heard somebody mention speech therapy. But I thought, oh, that might work for me. Yes, it's got humanities, it's got science. I'll investigate that possibility. And that was when I found out there was course run by the College of Speech Therapists in Melbourne 
and I applied and was interviewed by a couple of speech pathologists here in Perth who said, yeah, we think you're okay. We'll, <laughs> we'll support you. And I was able to use my Commonwealth scholarship to uh, pay my fees when I went to Melbourne to study. So that was it. It was, I suppose, just clutching a straw, but it was a straw that actually has delivered in spades. Yeah, wonderful. Can you tell us some of the career highlights that you've had from the period of time that you were a speech pathologist? Oh, where do I start? <laughs> um, I, I, I started working as a speech therapist, as we were called then, at Fremantle Hospital with two other new grads from uh, New South Wales. But because I started two weeks earlier, I was designated the head of the department. Goodness. <laughs> <laughs> and I've never not had a job where I wasn't the head of the department. <laughs> Just those two weeks at the start there. <laughs> those two first weeks at the start. Wow. But the thing I enjoyed about that placement was actually the ward work and the geriatric work. And so after two years, I went to Royal Perth Rehab Hospital. Um, and after two years, I was designated senior speech therapist at Royal Perth Rehab Hospital and head of the department. Um, and that took me to neurology and um, neurosurgery. And I just loved that work, loved that work. So that was a highlight, but I was also completing a degree at UWA. I switched my major to anthropology because I wanted to do more linguistics and anthropological linguistics was wonderful. I really enjoyed that. And I also did more neuroanatomy and head and neck anatomy because mm -hmm. I felt I needed to have more depth there and loved that too. So you can see I was kind of still grappling with combining these heart sites and science sites. And what was transformative was when one of my supervisors, uh, Mary Blatch, who had me as a final year student in my final semester, rang me out of the blue one night and said, what are you doing these days? I said, well, I'm finishing my career of the degree with the major in anthropology and medical sciences and I'd love to do postgraduate study and she said well she said Anne you might want to consider the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor because I understand they have a wonderful aphasia rehabilitation program there and are doing extraordinary work in that area so you know I went to the University of WA Library and I looked at the shelves, and there was the handbook at the University of Michigan. And I wrote to the Horace H. Rackham School of Graduate Studies, said I just finished a science degree, uh, but I'm also a speech therapist with a diploma. Would you accept me into doing a master's in speech pathology? And they wrote back and said, yes, happy to have you. But I was going to pay for that. 
the age-old problem. Contact the Churchill Fellowship Trust, which I did. And I put in an application to them, supported by a neurologist, a neurosurgeon. Um, I can't think that I had another referee, but whatever they wrote supported my application and said what a contribution it would make to rehabilitation of people with brain injuries or for the hospital. And I was awarded one for 12 months. Can you imagine that now? Yeah. It's such a long time to make so much difference, isn't it? It's critical, actually. Yeah. And um, last year, I was invited to go back to the 50th anniversary of the Churchill Trust Early Awards in WA. And um, I was talking with my husband, Steve Zubrick, and I said to him, Steve, you know, you have a very good take on how to tell a story. What do you think my story should be? And he said, Anne, can you imagine your life if you had not been awarded that Churchill Fellowship? And I said to him, no. He said, that's your story. And that was the story I told, but I could not imagine how my life would have unfolded if I'd not had that opportunity. Because when I went to Michigan and the work there was extraordinary, guess who was one of the people in the class? A young man from Ohio, Steve Zubrick. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Meant to be. Yeah, this year we celebrate our 15th wedding anniversary. Oh, congratulations. That's lovely. That was transformational. The rehabilitation I experienced and was part of at the University of Michigan program was one where people could only come in um, two years, at least two years after the assault, which may have been brain damage from Vietnam War, or it might have been a a motor vehicle accident, or it might have been a stroke or a tumor that had been removed. So we got rid of the spontaneous recovery argument. So they they needed to be at least two years after the brain injury so that we could address the question of what was spontaneous remission and what was due to the therapeutic effect. That was an important question Mm. because a lot of people were saying speech therapy doesn't make a difference. And so if you only are taking people in two years after, you have a chance to test that hypothesis. Some of them were Vietnam veterans. One had had more than half his skull and part of his brain removed in oh, wow. by a helicopter blade in, um, in Vietnam. Some of them had had tumors removed. Some of them had had cerebrovascular accidents of one kind and another. So some of them were drug addicts to add Mm -hmm. to the complications of of things. And they ranged in age. We had um, some of them in late 20s, early 30s. Some were victims of assault. All the way through to older persons who were 
in their 60s and 70s, where people again were arguing, this is really not worth um, any kind of investment in rehabilitation. So I was trained in neuropsychology um, by a man called uh, Aaron Smith. Um, and he was an extraordinary neuropsychologist, very intelligent, very confronting as a, mm -hmm. as a teacher and very enabling. And so um, Steve Zubrick was also one of the people in that group. And we were doing neuropsychological assessments. We were trained in doing neuropsychological assessment batteries of people pre-admission and also during the course of their therapy to begin to analyze the changes that we saw in their brain function, along with the descriptions that were there of how they were doing with um, speech and language. So that was part of a big, big research study and a lot of writing. That was an extraordinary experience. Yeah, it sounds it. Mm. And then Aaron arranged for me to go and work with the group of scientists in Boston, Harold Goodglass being one of them, and many others. Um, so I had a month in Boston after I finished my master's degree uh, in that context with lectures and law drums. And then I had a month in Omaha, Nebraska, with an experimental neurosurgeon who was doing ablations. Um, so people who had had um, epilepsy, some of them had hemispherectomies and some of them simply had the corpus callosum divided. Um, and he was following up what the consequences of those surgical interventions was on their neuropsychological function. He was also doing a lot of work with animals in the Omaha Zoo, uh, looking oh, wow. at what happened as you removed parts of the brain and how the monkeys recovered and so on. I mean, it was just incredible work. And I'm not sure that you get through the ethics on that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it was amazing. Cutting experience. edge at the time. Yeah. And he took me in to see a lot of his neurosurgery, often in the middle of the night. Come on, he'd say. <laughs> There's been a motor accident. Let's oh, wow. go see what we're managing here. And out would come a sucker and you'd watch this brain disappearing down the sucker with blood and everything else and think, oh my God, how is this person going to survive? Anyway, so that was a very different experience. And then I went to Rancho Los Amigos Hospital in Los Angeles where they were doing intensive rehabilitation and I learned a great deal in that service for a month. Came back and totally reshaped the services that we were offering at um, Royal Perth Rehabilitation Hospital to do very intensive mix of individual and group uh, therapies um, with the patients that we had there and help the clinicians in the team there uh, get the benefit of what I had learned away. So that was wonderful. And then I was asked by the newly appointed Dean at the West Australian Institute of Technology to join him and another speech pathologist on a committee to look at whether we might start a program in, to train speech therapists and audiologists within the West Australian Institute of Technology 
in the Faculty of Health Sciences. So Physio and OT had only recently gone in from their professional training, and WA, of course, had no professional training. And uh, I uh, was part of that team. And then at the end of that year, they asked me to apply to become the foundation head of that program. So Amazing. here I was at 28, <laughs> going into tertiary education as a senior lecturer. After wow. But I was uh, <laughs> to to head that program within a department of therapies. I worked alongside the head of physiotherapy and the head of occupational therapy. And I had to set about writing the curriculum and um, establishing the course. And so I signed up to do a DIPED in higher and further education so I could learn what I needed to know as a tertiary educator. And that was a wonderful experience. And I was very supported in that role. My first year I was there on my own. So yes. I had, <laughs> you know, just the students and me. And um, the first thing we did was learning, we, we bought 20 portable tape recorders, cost a fortune, but we had the budget for it. And I said to the students, you're going to learn how to use portable tape recorder. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a real innovation for them. They thought that was fabulous. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so I had them collecting speech and language samples, doing transcription, uh, showing them how to do analysis and uh, all things that one could get out of analysis so things that would tell you about children's language development or uh, adults in conversation and language samples that they had to collect and bring to class and we'd talk about what we learned through through that. So that was how we started. Uh, we had no clinical facilities. I had nothing that I could offer in the way of clinical work in that first year. But I worked with a few speech pathologists. They were in Perth. And by year two, I and my other offsider then uh, picked up practices that we worked in with students. And other therapists began to uh, pick up second-year students and um, offer them observations and guided clinical experiences and we just had to learn along the way um, some things went well some things didn't that's love nothing but quite like being starting something like that at the deep end is there though <laughs> <laughs> so that was certainly one of the thrilling highlights the other thrilling highlight came many years later I've tried finished my uh, PhD and I was been working um, for the West Australian Institute of Technology for 11 years. And one day a letter just arrived. I've got no idea how it, how it found its way to me saying, um, would I be interested in applying uh, for a professor's position at the University of Hong Kong? to be the Foundation Professor of Speech and Hearing Sciences there. Yeah. I had an Associate Professor position at Curtin University at that time. And I spoke to a couple of people about applying, including the um, 
person who was um, then the vice chancellor of uh, weight as it was going now into becoming Curtin University. And uh, Don Watt said, yes, he would very much support my application. Um, a couple of other people whom I approached said the same thing. And I went to Hong Kong for a week, um, which was an amazing experience to get a sense of what was required. I was shown a bare floor in the School of Dentistry, um, which um, was to become our space, and uh, asked what I needed put in there in the way of viewing rooms or storage or whatever. And um, I, after I'd had a week there of meeting all kinds of people in various government departments in Hong Kong, Department of Education, the Department of Health, uh, Department of Social Services, um, been wined and dined, and then interviewed and asked, asked the question, who would be your first appointee? Hmm. Who would be your first appointee? And Hong Kong had just 11 speech therapists at that time, 11 wow. for a population wow. of five and a half million people. And I thought we can't rob the profession of those therapists mm -hmm. to bring them mm -hmm. to the university. Um, we're going to have to recruit overseas, which is what I did. But my first appointee and the hardest one I knew was going to be to fill wasn't actually the first person who signed on the line, but the first person I looked for was the right linguist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because what we were going to have to do was to get the students to actually do the research. Yeah, we had to have the descriptive bases of what happened in language acquisition in Chinese. What were the patterns of stutterers in Chinese? What were the kinds of things that happened in voice disorders in Chinese? What were the patterns that happened with brain damage in Chinese? And I couldn't do any of that work. I wasn't a speaker of Cantonese. So we had to, um, we, we brought in a wonderful linguist, Sam Leung was his name. And he was finishing off PhD through the University of Hawaii. He knew nothing about speech pathology. He learned very quickly. As well. The, the students, of course, started in their assignments to do a lot of that descriptive work and begin the process of establishing the bases on which we could build the curriculum. Um, and we did. We got accreditation from the College of Speech Therapists in the UK. We thought it was really important mm. to have accreditation and recognition for the program. And after four years, people came out from the UK and spent time with us and we got that through. Later on, the program became a problem-based learning one, which is much more suitable educational yes. framework. But we couldn't have done that to start with. And uh, that was that was the right shift at that time. Um, but it would have been wonderful both when I was working at Curtin University and also in Hong Kong to have been able to put in place a problem-based learning curriculum. But the time was not right for that. 
So you built two programs up from the ground for the second one in Hong Kong. Did you yes. need quite as many uh, uh, voice recorders that second time round, or were they a bit more <laughs> better equipped? <laughs> no, 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 no. We were much more sophisticated <laughs> in, in, in that regard, and everybody could do a lot more uh, as technology was evolving. Mobile phones were just coming in, but they were very large at that time, so we didn't use mobile yes. phone technology, but we certainly had lots of very portable uh, devices. And the third opportunity came when I was asked to work with um, people at the National University in Malaysia to set up the program mm -hmm. in Kuala Lumpur. So I did some work with them um, to shape their curriculum uh, as they were starting off. And again, huge challenges in these new environments where you've got very few clinicians huge need for services mm. and um, working to enable and, and help students go out and feel confident in their ability to uh, to work and to start and to establish uh, things from the ground up. And now there are three university programs in Hong Kong, hundreds of speech therapists, uh, some audiologists, fewer audiologists than speech therapists, as they're still called in Hong Kong, but doing the most extraordinary work and extraordinary research and looking at speech language uh, disorders and parameters in, in Chinese. What does, it, what does it mean if you're deaf and you're learning a tonal language? Yeah. It's an advantage. Mm. How do you stutter in Chinese? What's different? when you're dealing with a language that's essentially monosyllabic. Um, what are the advantages in um, the ways in which you learn to read and write? And what are the disadvantages in a log logographic language uh, of learning uh, those processes? Um, how does that intersect in, in a school system, which is very, very rigid? And I'd be fascinated now to know whether the word neurodiverse is used in Hong Kong, whether people yeah. are recognizing and adapting to the kinds of parameters that are really part of our world here in Australia and other countries overseas. But when you're working in these cross-cultural contexts, it's very different and you have to do a lot of deep listening and a lot of profound learning. Fabulous. Thank you. So the, I know that you have moved into other work and other careers since you've been a speech pathologist. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like and, and what you've ended up doing? Well, it was a challenge. When I came back to Perth, I came back suddenly, well, not immediately, but shortly after my mother died, I had a number of things that I needed to. And Hong Kong was moving along very well. And I was not going to go back to Curtin University. I felt that was not appropriate and there wasn't another position. I didn't want to work as a, as a clinician. I didn't want to go into private practice. And it was just at the time that the University of Notre Dame was opening in Fremantle. And I thought, well, I can do some education. So I applied. I spoke to the um, then Vice-Chancellor of uh, the University and was appointed a professor of psychology. My PhD was in psychology, in life course, developmental psychology. 
and I um, uh, went there and taught undergraduate and postgraduate courses in wow. that area. So that was an interesting switch. And then I became Dean of Education there. Oh, amazing. And, uh, yeah, that took me into a whole other sort of uh, area of, of education. Um, but I decided that tertiary education wasn't the area that I wanted to continue. And uh, I resigned without having a job to go to. And when I gave a talk to the staff on the last day at the university, I, I used a, a phrase that I came across in some of my reading. I was talking about change and it said, look back with thanksgiving and forward with courage. That's lovely. And I thought that's what I that's what I have done and I need to continue to do. And things fell into place for me. I met in various ways with three other women who were all at the same point in uh, their lives. We were, I was the youngest of the four, but we were all somewhere between 45 and 55 at the time. And uh, we had all come to a realization that we were the, at the end of the career that we had really enjoyed and felt we'd done good work in, but we were ready for something different. There were three, three of us with the, the initial A, two Anne's, an Anna and a Jane, and we formed a company called AAAJ Consulting. And we wrote yep. a brief about what we could do in areas of early childhood education, in indigenous education, in um, education, communication, and me with my background in speech pathology and internationally in education. And we sent out that brief to um, Commonwealth departments, state organizations, businesses, and we ended up running that business for 22 years. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, doing a raft of different, different things, working on our own transitions, and people were very interested in transitional education. So we did a lot of work in that space, but also increasingly thinking about aging as a transition. And so partway through that, I decided I needed another degree. <laughs> <laughs> I enrolled at Charles Sturt University to do a master's in aging and pastoral studies. And at the end of that, I was asked if I would come onto the faculty and teach some courses. So I taught a foundation course in aging and pastoral care. And I taught one course, which was in dementia and the care of older people with dementia. And then also another one on the care of the person with dementia towards the end of life. So those are the three courses that I taught within that program, uh, all of which I really enjoyed. They were with very, very different group of students, um, often coming in later age to look at that. I learned a lot about Lutheran care from the nurses who are hired in parishes who do extraordinary work with older people 
but met so many people who were working in the aged care space. And when I finished that, I did a course at Royal Perth Hospital in clinical pastoral care, but particularly asked to work in the ward caring for people with dementia and mental illness to understand what the hospital experience was like. And it's it's tough work. Yeah, it would um, be. And did some work with the palliative care team there. Um, so in recent years, I've done volunteering work for Alzheimer's WA and also quite a lot of work in the community in, in the space of, of um, looking at aging, supporting people who are living with dementia and mental illness informally or on request and uh, trying to educate where possible. And as a volunteer, that's a harder thing to do yeah. through modeling and conversations um, the staff who are doing a tremendous job with not a great deal of preparation if they're working as uh, care supporters, caregivers in, in this space. So that's some of the work that I'm doing now and uh, still get asked to do some work in education, sometimes as an actor. And, uh, <laughs> sometimes just as myself, but having a, an acting, going back to all those things that I did years and years ago in speech and drama is a help. I'm a good mimic. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Um, so some of the things that I imagine a lot has changed in the time that you have been working when it comes to even things like the voice recorders that we were talking about before. Can you reflect a little bit on some of the major changes that you've observed in your working life? I want to focus, I'd like to focus on one. Sure. And it's something that I think about a lot. If I think back to my own education in uh, when I when I was doing my diploma, my LACST as it was then, we were taught by some exceptional clinicians. And what strikes me now is that it's a huge emphasis, not just in speech pathology, but throughout all of the health sciences and the health areas on what's called evidence-based practice. We did not have an education in evidence-based practice. We had an education in practice-based evidence. Yes, of course, that makes sense. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does. So the idea that the yeah. practice is informing the research. Practice informed, yeah. And the practice informed what you what you learn. Now, when I was a final year student, the journal Cortex had just recently been published, maybe been published perhaps a year before. And I thought, oh, this journal is never going to be available in WA. So I better go to go to the University of Melbourne Library. And I went to the University of Melbourne Library every Saturday while I was doing my final year to read the articles in Cortex and feel as if I was up with the, the research. At least at the Lincoln Library, we had the Journal of Speech and Hearing Research and, you know, we had the British Journal and so on. So I was reading those during the week, but Saturday I was devoted to Cortex 
and just think, no, 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 I have to get all this. And I had these photocopies and I had all these notes and I carted all these sorts of things around. So I was trying to fill in gaps and, and so on. The things that I think we were taught as students, and this is where I think I, you know, I come back to the point of um, problem-based learning and the small types of tutorials. We were taught to observe. We had a lot of training from Joyce Alley in observing children and taking notes and then being guided through all the things that we missed. And that was invaluable. And I really, really value that. And I hope that's part of what is happening in clinical education for students, not just the reading, but learning to observe. We learned to transcribe. We learned how to transcribe phonetically. We learned how to transcribe contexts. We learned to take notes to attend to lots of things in style. And we also had clinicians who did a lot of demonstrations for us in our clinical, clinical practice. And then we were thrown and said, try this, you know, go and have a go. Come back and tell me how you got on. We weren't videoed. Okay. Makes it tricky, that came, yeah. That came much later. And, and, you know, that's a very different thing. But we had to learn to observe ourselves. That sounds like the foundations of reflective practice there to me. I believe so. And coming back and the kind of conversations and guidance that we had. But I'm sure, for example, students now, one of the things I had voice placement, the thing that I had to learn there was how to produce esophageal speech. Oh, how interesting. Mm. And that was what the clinician sent me. She said, you know, for next week, practice burping, practice kind <laughs> so demonstrate to me what you've learned. And, you know, if you can't do it and you can't guide people, you're not going to be able to do this. So, you know, over the course of uh, uh, the months that I was there, I became quite proficient in social speech. <laughs> when I went to Hong Kong, and I talked to the students about this. No, 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 no. Everybody had an artificial larynx. <laughs> and I went, I was invited to one meeting, uh, which was organized by the ENT surgeons in Hong Kong, which was a celebration of their achievements. Uh, and everybody there, except for probably six or seven ENTs and me, an artificial larynx that was quite an evening wow yeah <laughs> I thought how times have changed but the point that I want to make is I I think that that whole thing of matching evidence-based practice with practice-based evidence is something that's very dear to my heart I remain a very avid reader of evidence but I remain very committed to practice and particularly reflective practice. And I think both of, both of those things go into the crafting of being a good clinician. 
Yeah, good. Thank you. I think that leads us really nicely to start talking about some of the challenges that you faced, but also some of the things that you've engaged in deep learning over the period of time as well. Is there anything in particular that springs to mind? Establishing, I, I think the hardest thing for me as an educator and also professionally is, is that whole question of starting programs when you have so few clinicians to do the teaching. Mm, I bet, yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the most valuable things for me, um, and something from which I learned a great deal, was um, working with my staff, and I did this myself in Hong Kong, um, where I took a group of five students over a six month period uh, and together we set up a new service. Wow. So we put out a call to the community and I used to go each week out to Shatin to a place that provided um, support for people who were older, um, some of whom had strokes, some of whom have had falls and so on. So it did some sort of respite, rehab, um, but also community outreach. So it gave a number of dimensions. And I said to the students, we're going to work, work on this. We're going to look at staff training. We're going to look at how you communicate with uh, family members. We're going to look at the kind of things that you might do in groups, um, the kind of things that you do in the way of evaluations. Um, the communication with the wider community, you know, writing for different audiences and saying this is what we're able to do and so on. And the students were just fantastic. And the growing and learning on all our parts, because I wasn't a fluent speaker of Chinese. I couldn't check the efficacy of what was happening in Cantonese, <laughs> yep. um, but we could get together each week and sort of plan what we were going to do and problem solve and so on. And I think that was that was invaluable learning for me and invaluable learning for them. And uh, that was certainly one of the biggest, biggest challenges to, to face. The other thing is really um, one which I think we're facing now in dementia. And that's an area in which I'm doing my best, um, not in a full-time way, but in all kinds of ways. I'm fascinated at the moment that, you know, we've got this whole kind of conversation happening around neurodiversity. Mm -hmm. And neurodiversity is something we kind of accept for the first half of life. Yeah. But once you hit a certain part of life, you're no longer neurodiverse, you're demented. Mm -hmm. And we've got all these squillions of differential diagnoses around different kinds of dementia. And we've also lost sight, I think, in that, of what's normal age-related changes. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of people who are highly anxious when they shouldn't be. And a lot of people who need support, particularly care partners, in dealing with a partner or a friend 
who has been given a diagnosis of dementia and no support to manage it. And that is a catastrophe in my view. Yeah. People are really struggling to find the kind of supports to say, particularly in the early part of the journey, um, let's spend time together. Let's see what we can craft around this. I think occupational therapists are doing a better job than speech pathologists in that space. <laughs> I think there's a lot of room for change, a lot of room for community education, and a lot of room for gentleness. And it bothers me that we are diagnosing people with dementia and saying, right, well, look, you've just failed all these tests, and um, now you're just going to have to adjust to that with no real context in where the supports come from and people reaching out. I mean, I think Dementia Australia is doing a fantastic job in, mm -hmm. in its role, but we need a lot more foot soldiers um, on, on the ground in, in that area and a lot of very different education with care workers than they're getting in the TAFE sector. So I know there are a few speech pathologists who are doing wonderful work in this area. There are too few of you, too few of you. And this is a really, really, really important area uh, in, in the whole aged care provision and the kind of work that I know is going on now in UTAS in their program, I'm sure will be quite influential. And there may be things that are happening in Australia that I'm unaware of, but I don't see a lot of it happening here in Perth. And a lot of people don't naturally go to the dementia space um, as, oh, I can't wait to work with people <laughs> who are living with dementia. Um, but we need it. We need yeah. it. That's exactly where we need it. And that idea of taking the time and building relationships in a kind and trusting and supportive manner at that point in time where a diagnosis happens, that can be so meaningful for the speech pathologist in question, but also for the, the family and the individuals that are involved in all of that as well. Yes, and particularly to avert some of the um, difficult behavioural dimensions mm. of dementia. <laughs> and I think if we, if we had much more work that was going in in the early stages uh, with families and with individuals and dealing particularly with the anxiety and loss and grief. It's a lot of anticipated grief in the dementia space and managing that well is a really important part of the, the therapeutic encounter. Absolutely. So I'm thinking a little bit about some of the things that you've mentioned and are there things that at this point in time that you would look back at and think, oh, I don't know that we would do that this way anymore or that that is something that potentially would surprise somebody that's a, a more recent graduate of speech pathology or, or any of the areas that you've done some education and teaching in? Are there practices that you think are potentially positive that we've lost or things that you think, oh, gosh, that's, it's, it's positive that we've moved away from that sort of thing in this time? I think, I think one of the things that I, I, I wonder about, I, I can't talk too much about what's happening in the practice area, but I can, okay. I'll mention, mention a couple. I'm not sure that there's opportunity to uh, 
for therapists to do intensive therapy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and intensive therapy is very helpful for, for some, at, at some points and in some circumstances, um, particularly, I think, with, with, with brain injury and brain recovery. Um, I think that's that's a loss. And I I think that the um, the loss of government services hiring speech pathologists. I mean, when when our yeah. first graduates came in, they were hired in salaried positions. People were not paying for therapy. And the fact that we've now moved to a model which is overwhelmingly private practice rather than employed practitioners, I think is a great loss because it means that a lot of people who would benefit from services don't get them. Now, you know, I, I understand what's happening within the NDI sector and I, the parts of that I celebrate. I think there are, there are other things which are really, really problematic. But I, I, I kind of mourn um, that, uh, that loss. I can't talk particularly about curriculum because I don't know enough about the current curriculum that is, is offered. But I do worry about young therapists coming out without supervision and mentors, particularly for master's programs. Um, and I really, really admire, um, I mean, one of, one of my long-term associates and person whom I see as often as I can in Sydney is Jan Baker, who works yeah. in the voice area. Jan was the year below me in Melbourne. But I think the kind of work that she is doing is saying, I've developed this incredible speciality of looking at functional voice disorders. And um, I have a lot of expertise here and I'd really like to train clinicians to understand how to work in this area well. And the mentoring and training and support that she is doing, I think is just wonderful. Now, I wish I could name seven or eight others. I'm sure they're out there who are doing uh, this kind of mentoring work and sharing the expertise that they've gained. But we need to have a lot more foot soldiers to support um, new graduates. One of my um, former students, Jenny Baker, has the most remarkable practice here yeah, in Western yeah. Australia. I mean, I, she is just an absolute inspiration. And the kind of ways in which she's mentoring young therapists, new graduates, establishing education uh, programs, resources, all that sort of thing. We need lots more Jenny Bakers in their areas of specialty, um, thinking about that, that sort of model. I'm, I'm just astonished with her. Um, but I recently had the privilege of having uh, lunch just before Christmas with all the graduates who came out of weight in 1983. Oh, wow. And so, yes, 40 years later. And I was just thrilled to hear their stories. 
and the diversity of those stories and the ways in which they had shaped life and life had shaped them in the kinds of directions that they're now taking in their clinical roles and in their leadership roles. So I, I, that excites me. That's thrilling to hear. Yeah, fabulous. Well, I guess looking forward to the future, are there some things that you currently admire about the profession? I admire the way in which um, so many universities have established programs and seen this it's amazing, as amazing, isn't it? Yeah, uh, for development in the whole area of allied health and allied health sciences. I think allied health in this country is extraordinary. I'm very, very proud of the way in which allied health um, works and works really well and, and really competently. I think we've got people who are doing extraordinary research in this area and publishing. Um, Anne Whitworth is one of my former students and her work in aphasia and narnia is, is wonderful. I mean, it, it's, it's world-class. Mm. And I know there are um, many others who are, are doing work in that area, and not just in aphasia, but, but in speech pathology generally, that is absolutely world-beating. And I think we have every reason to be proud of that. I hope that young researchers coming up um, find pathways sustaining for them. I'm concerned in the way in which research is being funded, guided, facilitated, that that's becoming tougher and tougher and tougher. So I do worry about some of the future, but I hope that there are always young clinicians uh, who, are, who are striving for postgraduate qualifications and finding areas that they really wish to pursue. And to get into work that is very difficult and risky. So I think about some of my former students, for example, who work in the area of voice with trans young people. You know, this is a hugely fraught and difficult area and I admire them. And I hope they do some lovely writing about the, the way in which they, they craft, not just the voice, but the emotional journey that they undertake in companionship uh, with those persons and and their families through that through that time. And I hope that we remain open uh, as we enter this strange space of of neurodiversity um, to really really rethink our engagement uh, in, in aged care. It's not just about swallowing. There is so much that can be done 
in the area of improving communication skills with older people, um, whether they have hearing impairments, whether they have dementia, whether they've had strokes, whether they have dysarthrias, and so much that can be done in the community. So I hope that people will look at community courses and offer their skills as volunteers, not just as paid professionals. Just a few thoughts of mine. Yeah, brilliant. And I think that leads us really nicely to the last thing we'd like to talk about before we let you go today is just if there's any advice that you have for anybody that's listening today. It sounds like the volunteering is a good place to start. Yes, volunteering is, is certainly a good place to start. I guess, I guess what I feel is, you know, life finds us. Yeah. Um, and be prepared to be surprised. And don't reject, first off, something that comes as a surprise. So when I got to the letter, for example, that came from Hong Kong, mm -hmm. I uh, had lunch with a colleague that day and I said, you'll never forget what happened to me today. I got this letter asking me if I'd be willing to apply for a position in Hong Kong as foundation professor. And this woman said, and? <laughs> and I said, oh, where did that come from? And she said, what's your response going to be? And she said, respond and say you're open, you're interested, and see where that leads. And I did. Um, but I wonder if I hadn't had that conversation, would I naturally have done that? Not sure, but be brave. Look at the possibilities. They may or may not work out, but accept it that this has come your way and this may lead to something that you could not have dreamed of. What a beautiful place to leave it on. Thank you so much for your time today, Anne. It's been really lovely talking with you. Thank you, Nadia. It's been a privilege for me to share it. And thanks to everybody who's listening. Make sure you tune in next time for our next conversation. Bye for now. We hope you've enjoyed this week's conversation. Please subscribe to the podcast and share with your colleagues and friends. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.